Hi there, you are listening to the Being Unstoppable podcast, where we talk about being unstoppable in your brand, business, and life. I'm your host, Carolee Fontanelli, and as an entrepreneur, lawyer, course creator, and author, I understand what it takes to strive for the next level. Through 20 years of having several businesses, making a ton of mistakes, and celebrating loads of success, I love to share my secret sauce, tips, and strategies on how you too can become unstoppable. So today on the podcast, I have Troy Truen from Growing a Small Business, amongst a whole lot of other things. So I'm super excited because you are the first bloke I've had on board. Really? Thanks, Carly. Yes. And this is also, I hear, the first um, podcast where you have been a guest because usually you are the one on the other end asking the questions. That's right. We're up to about 60 of our casts alive now. We started late December 2019. And uh, no one has ever asked me to be on their podcast, so thank you very much. That's awesome. So before I get started and we get stuck in, I always ask my guests the same question, which is, what makes you unstoppable? Yeah, that's a really good question. And thanks for giving me about a minute to think about this (laughs) answer um, before we hit record. It's, you know, I think I've always had a pretty strong drive. in life. And I think the kernel of that comes actually from my mother who passed away about 15 years ago. Uh, She was a very stubborn, strong woman, Um, not always rational, I think, in in terms of a few things, but she was very, very driven. Um, Her and dad split up when I was about 10. uh, And that obviously had a big impact on me. But watching mum grow up as a disabled pensioner um, and struggle but never never complained about the situation just got on with things and was a hard worker so I think that that's been ingrained in me from from a childhood from a very early age and so I guess second to that also is watching mum and dad grow a business um so they had a uh, interviewed dad on my podcast actually it's one of my favorites the only one he wouldn't let me swear I wasn't allowed to swear on because he wanted the grandkids to hear it But he started, he fell into the fuel business. So aged 15 or 16, I think they had a big drought in the farm where he was working with his father and his dad said, go and go and get another job. So literally the next day, dad, on the way driving to town, first place dad stopped was a petrol station, got a job, started the next day and got into the industry and, and built that business up to when he retired early 2000. Uh, it was a Coltex distributorship initially and that business partnership went sour, didn't go well. He didn't do that well financially out of it, I think. That's what he said on the cast. And But the second um, go at it, it was a BP distributorship. And when he exited, they were doing about 100 million litres a year, I think 80 million top line, about 30 staff. So I've always known, you know, small business pretty much. And uh, and and seeing how challenging and hard it is, uh, coupled with the fact that I've got a strong work ethic and I like to do things that are hard, I think that's why I'm unstoppable. That's awesome. I love that. So parents have had a massive influence um, yep. in many ways. So um, let's talk about how we got to know each other, which is one thing I love about actually hosting a podcast is that you get to meet all kinds of interesting people that you'd otherwise um, never com- connect with. 
So um, just let's talk for a minute about how we know each other and then I want to hear all about you and your business. Sure. So it's, it's funny. Conversely to you, um, I have a lot of females on my podcast, female business owners, but that didn't happen by accident. The first 25 of the first 26 casts were all male. Uh, reaching out to my network to get people to come onto my cast, I was really struggling to convince uh, not that I have a high proportion of female business owners in my network. I looked the number up the other day, actually, because someone challenged me on this. I think in Australia, there's about 35% of business owners, small business owners in Australia are, are female. So I wanted to balance it up not and go beyond that because I like uh, you know a challenge uh, above 35%. And so we've got a goal at the moment by early 2021 to balance the the, the gender up to 50-50. And we're, we'll be there by January because every... Um, only every third episode now is male. There's two female than male. So I gave Peter, our editor in Kenya, an outreach project a few months ago to approach female business owners in Australia to come on the cast. And he's landed about 50 interviews since I gave him that project, which has been phenomenal. And all of them have been great. You know, I've been really surprised and inspired by a lot of the stories that I've heard, including your own. Yeah, so that's awesome. So we met through your podcast um, yep. and I've, I was so fascinated by your story. I really wanted you to come on my podcast because um, so much of your story is about being unstoppable. So tell us about um, your business and your movements and sort of where you've been and how you've got to where you are now and exactly where you're located and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. The, so I'm based in Hobart, Tasmania, probably the best, uh, best place in the world, if you're asking me. I've been to 30 countries and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Um, I, in the last 10 years, uh, since moving back from London, I had four years in London and then 10 years in Melbourne before that. But in the last 10 years, I've really been working in the distilling industry, specifically whiskey, uh, because we bought the last 448 barrels of New Zealand whiskey um, in a town, the warehouse in a town in Omaru, just an hour and a half north of Dunedin. So I've spent a bit of time in your beautiful native country um, over the last 10 years, over there every three or four months when I was CEO of that business. And June this year, I finished up there to focus really on um, sitting on boards. You know, I'm sitting on five boards at the moment, of which I chair three of those. And that work I really, really enjoy because it's very difficult. Yes. So what um, boards are you on at the moment? What kind of businesses are they? Well, sadly, they're all still in the beverage space, which is dangerous. So I, I chair the second biggest craft brewery here in Tasmania called Hobart Brewing Company. I sit on an advisory board in Western Australia, so I'm heading over there Thursday night for an AGM on Sunday, uh, very fast growing and a massive award-winning gin and vodka distillery in the, in just out of Perth there. Um, Ratho Farm here in Tasmania, about an hour out of Hobart. It's Australia's oldest golf course and they've got 17 rooms that have been, that were old convict cottages that have been done up. Beautiful place to stay in a giant homestead with an atrium where you know, have weddings and events and corporate things. So I've been sitting on that board for four or five years as well. Uh, the Distillers Institute, which we founded earlier this year, we've got 150 students doing that online course at the moment. I'll sit on that board. And I've just started more recently to get out of the very dangerous beverage space, um, chairing the biggest bricklaying firm here in Tasmania uh, called All Brick. And they've got a, a sister company called All Carpentry. And they've just started up a third business called Multi Res, which focuses on uh, developing social housing. Uh, so wow. partner, in partnership with the Catholic Church and Department of Housing down here in the federal government, which is just really taking off at the moment because the, the feds in particular are finally doing something about the shortage of social housing in this country. 
that is um, quite the stack of um, items that you, you get up to. How do you juggle all of that? Well, as I said before we hit record, I used to be a Boy Scout, so the motto is always be prepared. I like, I'm very organised and, and put a lot of structure into my weeks and my day, um, and, but I have not always able to handle that workload or balance very well over the years. So I really had to work hard on it. And when my seven and a half year old daughter came along, that certainly added perspective and, uh, you know, forced structure into my, further structure into my life. And now my eight-year-old chocolate labrador keeps me in check. So we go out bushwalking every day to um, make sure I'm not always working, which is hard because I love 99.7% of what I do. Yeah, that's right. And um, so would you think, you know, are you sort of one of these people that working is like such a love that, or, you know, owning business, being in business, like you love it so much that that's sort of, you know, it's in your blood that it's sometimes hard to extract yourself away because it's, it's all of your life just about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm much better at these days. I've been in business now 21 years. So late 99, I quit PricewaterhouseCoopers after three years uh, there, after straight after uni, and started two internet companies. One, as I like to say, went mining for gold. So an e-tailer, my business partner there, this Greek family had two big gift warehouse stores in Melbourne. And the other business we started at the same time was selling the pans and the shovels and, you know, the, the, the bar services in the mining fields. So kind of hedging my bets there. And that was a web design development company, which is still going now. They've got offices in Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide and Bali. So, but doing that, obviously, um, starting two businesses at once, especially in the, in the big tech boom, I was working 100-hour weeks, uh, sleeping about four hours a night, some nights sleeping under my desk in the warehouse. So, uh, And I certainly didn't have a balance early on in, in the, my career because I thought brute force would just uh, you know, bring success, which is not the key. No, it's not the key, is it? I've, um, I've talked about that on my podcast, and that's what I talk about a lot in my Scalable Business Society really is that working um, you know, harder doesn't necessarily make you more successful. It, it can just lead to burnout. Um, so it's really about yeah. working smarter, isn't it? That's right. And I listened to your cast the other day on that, working smarter, not harder. And I totally agree with all the advice you gave there. So it's certainly something I'm better at these days, but I still have an urge. I mean, I've shut my brain off at night. I no longer have, you know, ideas swimming around my head. I've probably got a handle on that 10 years ago. And when I do go out and do something else that's not work related, then I am pretty good at switching off, but it's innate within me. I'm a business owner. I'm driven and, you know, like a challenge and, 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 and creative so it is hard sometimes to keep a handle and keep that in in the box and and uh and just get on with it so relationships over the years i've had many pissed off girlfriends um over the years but um i think i'm much better at it these days yeah and well, an ex-wife actually and an ex-wife and uh the mother of my daughter is an ex as well so yeah 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 well we've all been there haven't we <laughs> yeah uh, it's all part of life's little um, concoction that, that happened. Um, so I was wanting just to quickly go back to, you know, the um, brewing and distilleries and that kind of thing because it seems to me like this is a little bit off segue, but it seems to me just even on the Gold Coast that distilling is like such a fashionable thing at the moment, particularly gin. Um, and also breweries, beer, and that type of thing. Um, even on the Gold Coast, we're such a small town, as is Tasmania, but, you know, there's distilleries and brewing houses. You have Black Hops Brewery there in the Gold Coast? 
Um, we've got the Burley Brewing. I'm not sure about Black Hops, but there's also gin distilleries like popping up everywhere. Um, yep. What do you think that is all about? Um, well, brewing-wise, I still don't think that we're – so I actually looked at this number a few years ago because people would ask me all the time, is it getting saturated in Australia? And probably three or four years ago I did some numbers and the ratio of craft breweries in New Zealand, Australia and USA. And at that point, uh, Australia and US were about one craft brewery per 50,000 of the population, whereas New Zealand was one for 25,000. So it was certainly a glut over in New Zealand. But interestingly, there hasn't been that much consolidation in New Zealand. There's been one or two go under, but that's mainly out of financial mismanagement um, more than anything. So I still think there's room to grow in Australia for, for craft beer, um, but particularly because a lot of the ones starting up, same with distilling, are small batch operations. You know, they're not big. There's a lot more coming into both distilling and brewing at the moment. Multinationals investing a, a shit ton of cash and capital into getting scale because none of us can really export in the spirit space anyway, in the whiskey space specifically, because there's just not enough supply because whiskey needs three to eight years in the cask. So, yeah. yeah, I still think there's room to grow there. And in distilling, uh, gin might be a little bit too crowded now. There's something like 400 Australian gins at the moment. There's 300 distilleries in Australia, of wow. which 60 or 70 of those, yeah, 60 or 70 distilleries are in Tasmania, so we're the epicentre down here. Um, but, yeah, 300 distilleries, and that's making all different spirit types, rum, brandy, whiskey, and gin and vodka. But um, I still think there's room for more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So what's your, um, because you're a business coach as well and you help small businesses grow, um, what's your idea around competition? So, you know, you're talking about, um, the industry that you're very familiar with, which is breweries and distilling and all that type of thing. When do you think, you know, if someone's got an idea, for example, and, but they kind of feel like, oh, there's so much competition or, you know, what are your mindsets around that? Well, I think uh, something I learned from Bill Lark, because Australia had inherited this funky law from the UK, the 1901 Distillation Act, which meant you could only have a distillery operation with a giant steel. You couldn't do crafts. That would be like 20,000 litres capacity or something, which is just prohibitive if you want to start off small. <clears throat> so he lobbied, and that went all the way up to uh, Canberra, to Barry Jones. I don't know if you know Barry Jones. He's a very smart, was a very smart guy. He is, sorry, I think he's still alive. <clears throat> um and was on sale of the century and won that uh, as well. And he got the law change in 92. Then Bill started here in Tasmania in 92, making small batch whiskey. The family sold out in 2013 to 35 investors and they, they wanted a CEO to run the business, which I did for a couple of years and took it from a family business into a corporate one. And Bill used to, he's, a, he's known as the godfather of Australian whiskey. He's in that whiskey, sorry. He's known as the godfather of Australian whiskey. He's an absolute legend in the game. And he's got this saying, which is, on a rising tide, all boats will float. So he really encouraged competition in the distilling space, <clears throat> so much so that he's helped probably 70%, say 60% now, of the, of the distilleries in Australia in one way or another. And then and in the top 10 biggest ones as well, I'd say seven or eight of those top 10, he was instrumental in helping those people get up. He'd just give his time. Uh, and because of that, one of the distilleries he helped start start up went on to win the best single malt whiskey in the world in 2014 which was the first distillery outside of scotland or japan to win it uh, and that really shone a light on tasmania and australian whiskey and therefore his brand and his business um, benefited from his benevolent helping of the industry 15 years earlier 
Yeah. So actually by getting in there, creating community, um, cultivating competition and that type of thing, rather than um, feeling like it's, it's doomed because there's competition, you think actually creates more business. It can do. There's obviously exceptions to that, but having more of an abundance mindset to say there's enough market there for everyone. Um, you obviously need to do your research. I remember distinctly my board, our biggest shareholder when I was there at Lark it was, it was an ASX listed company. They owned about a third of it. And they're all ex-KPMG, big finance guys, and they're all just shaking their heads going, why aren't we killing our competitors? What are you, what's Bill doing? Why are we helping these people? And obviously it's bore out to a great strategy overall. So if the Obviously, in more mature industries, there might be some genuine competitive tension, but um, overall, I think there's still space to be uh, kind and and help out those in in your industry. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's how we sort of conduct ourselves as well. And you can, you know, just because I sort of feel like just because you're in competition doesn't mean that you're um, necessarily competing because you all bring something different to the table as well. So one yep. brand or one offer, you know, might be different from another. Like as a family lawyer, you can't be everyone's lawyer and, you, and you're not for everybody. Your approach isn't for everybody. That's right. And that's a good point. Uh, something I learned a bit too late, I think, in my 21 career now in small business is to focus and niche down and find one something. It's a Venn diagram that I talk to, which is having something you've got a real passion for is one circle, something you've got a talent for, and the third circle is there's a market there for, for those. And then obviously in the middle is is where you should be really focusing. And that goes for businesses. You just can't be all things to all people. We When we launched the web company in 99, we were very unfocused. We'd do anything, not just web work, we'd just do anything. And we learned the hard way. Mm, I think that's a big mistake that I think everyone learns initially and then they work it out. <laughs> Yeah, unless they've got a good mentor or coach to knock some sense into them. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that. So um, when did you start sort of like you've been on boards, but when did you start actually sort of taking on clients or uh, or business coaching as such? Uh, (coughs) It was about 15, 16 years ago it would have been. When I was in Melbourne, uh, I went along to an Austrade seminar because I was looking at moving to London and, and starting something over there. And I remember distinctly that um, this Japanese lady was there and we were just talking and she ran a translation services business. And I, she was kind of fishing for some more advice and I was very busy at the time and, and you know, didn't really take up that, that request and then saw it at the next one and she just kept asking and, and there were some fundamental things I could see was wrong in her thinking. So I ended up just starting to mentor her on a pro bono basis for some years. And then I, a few other people while I was in Melbourne and then got to London and a similar thing happened. I find it very hard to say no to people to pass on the mistakes that I've made so they don't make them. Yeah. Um, but formally, uh, I guess, yeah, in the last two or three years, um, one of the, a couple of the boards I sit on, I also do some coaching to their CEO because I do find, particularly if they're a like sole owner at the top, it's quite lonely at the top, as you know, and you don't have a lot of people you can talk to about some specific problems you may be having in your business or they may not see some risk coming or issues. And so we just had a strategy day on Saturday, for example, for the bricklaying firm down here, and that was really good and really powerful. But every two weeks I catch up with their CEO. Um, he asked, requested that you know, a few weeks ago, and that's going really well. 
Um, and I take things out of that strategy day and then I coach him as a leader. Well, one simple thing is that I'm um, just changing the language that he uses uh, within the, the team. Uh, he raised it and I said, well, you're the one saying it and you've got to stop saying it. And that is we're just a bunch of brickies. And I say, you're not just a bunch of brickies and you need to change your vocab and your language because that will have a flow and effect to recruitment, which is what our big issue is at the moment. The business is growing so fast, we can't get enough bricklayers. So we're talking about that whole thing of PR and culture, et cetera. So it's having someone external that's not there day in, day out and can see, you know, the forest when you're standing in the trees and, and give that poignant advice or put an idea in your head that you may not have ever had or at the right time. Yeah, and I think every industry um, has that sort of mindset that of what they are. So it's like, oh, well, we can't do that because we're just a, or we can't yep. do that because we are this. And really, like, business is the same no matter what business it is, right? And yep. If it's all about numbers and 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 data and sales. Um, without that, it doesn't matter what you have. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, what's the key elements that you um, do to help people? Do you think in their businesses? Yeah. So I got some feedback on the name of my business that I or I got the domain name ten years ago on the way back from London when I was sitting on a beach in Thailand. Had the idea. Didn't really do anything with it until about a year ago and rebooted it. But one of my marketing mentors, a friend of mine, he's probably 10 years younger than me. No, actually, geez, 15 years younger than me. Um, Tim really pushed back and said the name is too broad. Uh, you need to niche it down. I said, I understand where you're coming from, but my talent, passion, things I love doing is helping a small business grow. It's not startups. It's not businesses in the distilling space or beverages because it's the same problems I've seen across now 21 years. I've had 14 of my own businesses. 22 different business partners in three countries. So, you know, I've seen a lot and and, and the, the issues are often uh, wrong strategy, no strategy, and no execution, the wrong people on the bus, as Jim Collins talks about. Um, you don't have A players. Um, and more so, well, sorry, less so, it's down to not enough capital to grow. It really is the core of it, I think, is, the, the people are the most important thing in business and also, sorry, one of my sayings is people are the hardest thing in small business and where the value is at. So really supporting the, the leaders of the business and the managers in, in business for how to get more out of their team so they're more productive and everyone's less stressed as well. Yeah, exactly. And so what sort of like advice would you give to a business owner that say in a rut, um, working to the point of burnout because they're working ridiculous hours, kind of doing everything themselves and not making sort of traction because they're kind of really stuck working in the business. What what would you say to someone like that? First thing I'd recommend is read The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which I know you've read. Yes. <laughs> That's the number one business book I recommend anyone should read before they start a business or start growing it. Secondly is I would get a formal or informal board or board of advisors around you that meets on a regular basis, say monthly, and you have different skill sets and experiences. So depending on where your business is at, it may be weak in marketing or you've got a big push coming up in marketing. So you may need an advisor on that board that's strong in marketing. Um, finance has to be there. You've got to have someone with a big uh, financial background. Uh, and then depending on where, what stage you're at and what your industry is, you might have an industry um, expert on on the board as well but the way I describe boards are they're intellectual piranhas you throw an issue on the table they rip it apart and the best outcome 
you know, falls away from that conversation and then the leader of the business has more confidence or clear direction either to go down one path or not down a path at all. Uh, and I've found in the last few years and watching the board at Lark, for example, and I had five directors, they're all professional directors, and I really got to see how an effective board works. And I've taken that down a step because that's quite a big business, a lot of big hitters on that board, ASX listed company, down to more of an agile corporate governance going, right, what's our strategy? Where are we at? Um, what are the issues in the business? And then to get on with it. Yeah. So how, how would you advise someone, say, who's got a small business, say, five, a team of five or something like that? How would someone like that put together a board like yep. a well, I wrote, I've written a couple of LinkedIn articles on this exactly. If, um, if you want to link through on the show notes, I can send those through to you. Um, but even if you're, say, five team members and you might be in a financial pinch point, you may not be able to afford it, you can still start with pro bono or informal mentors or advisors on that board. You'd be surprised how many people are willing to give their time to someone, um, especially if they're retired or, you know, they're business like yourself. You, you've got your business humming. You spend about 10 hours a week in your business. And you've got 14 team members and it's humming along. So there, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help. Um, and might be start with an hour a month, take them out for a coffee or a lunch, and then you build it up from there. You might add another advisor, but you need someone to out, someone outside to ask you the hard questions and hold you to account. When we caught up last month, you said you were going to do this. Why haven't you done this? Uh, because there's no one to, to hold the business owner to account effectively, um, and you really need that as well as the clarity of different thinking um, or just so plainly obvious that they're doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Yeah, that's it. And so one, one thing that we often do as business owners, particularly when we're earlier on, is that we don't hold ourselves, like we're the worst employees in our business. Yeah, because it, it's easy to be busy. There's so many emails. That's um, busyness. That's not productive, you know, not always productive. So, again, coming back to the focus, what's the strategy? You know, what are we going to achieve in this next quarter? So, I, I like to have three-month uh, focus because I only work with fast-growing businesses. Um, some of them have a monthly focus because they're growing so fast. So, um, so what's important because then, because if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority and you will just fritter away time and it's our most valuable resource because it's non-renewable is our time. So it's having that strategy. We know where we're going right now and then it's execution. You know, why aren't we hitting our milestones and goals like we, we all agreed we need to? Yeah, exactly. And so much of the time when it's just us and you don't have that accountability. Yep. Time just splits away and before you know it, like we are now nearly in 2021. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So what's the number one thing that you'd recommend um, when it comes to marketing um, a growing business? So this is actually one of the questions that you asked me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm copying your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is great because I've learned from the 60 or so podcasts. We've actually recorded a lot more than that. But, and that's, that's been a great question. I only added you know, 10 or 15 episodes in. But I, I tend to agree with a large number of these responses, which is to know your customer. Um, and I've been doing some work recently on the strategizer framework, which is out of the USA, which is all about value proposition design and testing your assumptions because that was some of the things, mistakes we made early on. We just assumed we knew what our customers wanted and often we're not our customer. And I love that uh, quote that from Peter Drucker. It's in the front. I was just reading the book last night. I interviewed Bob Mester on the podcast the other week. He's a you know best-selling Amazon author, 
uh, and a uh, very creative guy and digging innovation. But I'll try and remember the Peter Drucker quote, which is people don't buy what a company company often thinks it's selling. And it was just such a, I love a lot of Peter Drucker's quotes because you really got to think about them for a second. Uh, so knowing your customer really well and the way Bob Messer talks about it is understanding their struggling moments. Mm. Um, so, uh, for example, he's given a couple of good examples, but I was just listening to one of the podcasts that goes live next week on, on my podcast and Daphne was talking exactly about that, that, she owns a, a you know 24 paint stores, half of which she's franchised out. And uh, I asked her that marketing question. She said, knowing your customers and understanding why they need to buy, because you don't just wake up and say, oh, today's the day to buy paint. Yeah. So when they get to the store, her team asks, why, uh, why are you buying this paint? Is it because you've just bought a house or you're about to sell the house? And there can be different needs for that. So really understanding your customers and, you know, and uh, honing in on their yeah. needs. And often I think when we're in our own businesses and our own industries and we've been in the industry for a long time, we lose sight of what our customers' pain points actually are yep. and what the feeling is that they need to achieve to feel successful after having your product or service. Yep. Don't wait. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll link. I'll send you through the link for Bob's book. I think it's a great book, but also the Strategizer Framework, which I've, we've only just started doing for the Distillers Institute, the online courses. We're doing that now because we've released course one, and before we jump into course two and market that, we want to step back a bit and make sure that our language communication and the customers we're targeting, because we've now started Facebook advertising, are the right ones, and our value proposition has been designed correctly. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's, there's so much to that, isn't there? Getting that language right um, and actually being able to speak into your ideal client's ears yep. um, rather than um, what, you know, like as a lawyer, for example, we're really bad at um, talking like our clients understand because we speak lawyer and no one understands it. Yep, that's right. And, and it's, you know, it's um, you've got to kind of tone it down and think about what it's like to be on the other side of things. So uh, what does, this is another question that you asked me and I'm blatantly um, copying pasting <laughs> questions. Which is ironic, <laughs> you're a lawyer, yeah. Because they were so good. Thank um, you. So what does success look like for you? Oh, no, I didn't even, no prep to answer this question. I've, <laughs> I've had it's about 70 responses I should have learned by this by now. Success for me, well, I'll answer that in two, in two realms. First, for me, it's, it's, it's uh, outside of business. So success for me is um, the relationship with my daughter and my dog, more so with my daughter, obviously. Um, that's really important to me. So spending time with her, investing time, it hasn't been smooth sailing. We've had some issues. Um, I travelled a lot last year, nine trips in six months, five countries, and, and came back and she had some behavioural issues because she didn't tell me till afterwards. But uh, when I landed after my longest trip, which was two and a half, uh, two and a half weeks, Perth, London, Paris. It was the longest I'd been away from her. And my girlfriend at the time and her four-year-old daughter picked my daughter up from school and got me from the airport and stayed the night. And Maggie was not happy with that. She didn't tell me until months later. So, you know, it, it's something that I'm still going to have to keep working on, obviously. But for me, success is that relationship with my daughter and, and my family and my wider friends. It's really important. For a business success point of view, I think it is being happy doing the work that I love doing, obviously having financial enough financial success to be happy, but it's not all about money. It's it's really about the work that you do and the good work or the results you help other people achieve. 
Yeah, exactly. So um, also I've got a few other little questions. So Mm -hmm. more around business. Um, What do you think has been the most challenging things for you in growing your businesses? You've obviously owned a lot of businesses and sold a lot of businesses and, you know, you've had a lot of business partners and things like that. So out of all of that, what's been the most challenging and maybe something that you wouldn't repeat? Yeah, I'd I'd say people and that starts with your co-investors or your business partners. And being young and naive, I think I was 20, let me do the math, 26 when I started my first business effectively late 99. It was actually about 11 when I started my first business, which was lawn mowing. But um, I think people, and that's something I've really spotted up on in the last 10 years, is to get better at not just people management, but recruitment. And it is the most important job a manager does is recruitment, getting the right people on the bus. Um, So I think that's the most challenging thing. And there's not enough content out there at the moment, I think, to help people become better managers. A big advocate of the Manager's Tools podcast, which is the number one business podcast on the internet. They've been going 15 or 16 years and they've got some great advice, although they're big background ex-Procter and Gamble. So it's a lot of it, a lot of it is corporate advice. But there's 70 to 80% of their teachings you can adapt to a small business. So I definitely would say people, whether it's business partners or your team. Yeah, I think that most people would agree with you on that. When it, you know, when I'm talking in my circles of friends, um, you know, I've got a, a great friend who's an employment lawyer. You know, people who you, you who are um, dealing with this kind of thing all the time. But it, even in our own teams, people is definitely the most challenging thing because we all still have life and our own lives and emotions yeah. and things going on. And you know, not everything's. Um, we don't just leave home and then come to work and switch change our personalities for that do we we that's right but i will add to that that's the reason why i do what i do i remember at the web company one of the nerds asking me because one of my degrees is computing so i used to love programming at uni but one of the nerds asked me why don't you come back to the dark side and do you know programming web code development i said to brownie i said it's i love it i enjoy it but it's zeros and ones you know people are really hard it's like herding cats they have ups and downs, issues going on at home, there's infighting within the team, et cetera. And that is a really challenging thing to get everyone working towards the vision and the goal that the business has. And that is what I enjoy doing is something that's really hard. So talking about visions and goals, um, you obviously set yourself goals and, and have visions for each business that you're involved in. How much of those um, visions and goals do you think that you should be sharing with team members oh absolutely all of it and and even uh, have them help you um, design that vision you can start I mean the the, the the go-to book on this is I'm not sure if you've read it but is Jim Collins built to last written in the oh, early that one it's an absolute stellar book so late 80s he started this five-year research project and they studied 21 amazing companies and each one of them had a, a comparison company so for example the uh, Boeing was the amazing company and McDonnell Douglas was the um, comparison company and there's companies like Disney and Sony in there, Walmart, et cetera, and they've each got, a, each got a comparison company and they start out that book a bit dry, statistical, but they show how <clears throat> the comparison companies, this is over 50 years, was one of their criteria and had to be going for at least 50 years, I think, um, that the comparison companies outperformed their stock market at fivefold, right? But the amazing companies... Out, outperformed those comparison companies tenfold, so massive returns, you know, out of, off the charts. And they wanted to study and understand why, 
what was the difference? You know, what was the factor? And they went in with their own preconceived notions of it was a brilliant leader, charismatic leader, great product, great strategy, right timing. And it was none of that. I'm not going to give it away. But the, a big piece of value that drops out of that book is the vision, mission, value framework. And, and Jim Collins uh, really is the godfather of that thinking and crystallizing it in the 90s. And I know there's a lot of naysayers out there. People think it's, uh, you know, a vision statement on the, on, on the reception the wall is just useless, but really succinct and poignant vision and mission statements that hit to the heart, you know, of what you're trying to do add tremendous value. Well, I think that um, everyone who goes into business, they don't just go into business to make money, do they? They go into business to make an impact. Yep. And if you are not, don't have that vision, you know, and and how you're actually making that impact, how can you actually then be successful at that. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Um, so the other question I've got for you, because you've got so much business experience, which I'm super interested in, in knowing the answer. If you were starting today with, and you had really very minimal capital to put into a business, um, what are the sort of things that you would do to get yourself revving really quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, you can hustle, uh, you know, if it's a product-based business you wanted to get into, you can start with low capital, just snowball your sales from there. Obviously, professional services, there's not much capital needed to start out if you're selling your own time, but you obviously need to have some experience in your area to be able to become a, a trusted expert in that field. Um, definitely invest in your brand and your marketing and set that up um, from day one and and also pricing as well don't make sure to try and compete on price you need to make sure that you are uh you value yourself for a start um because you you, you could find that um you know how accountant said to us at the web company in the early 2000s you gotta you gotta double your prices or increase your prices we said no we're gonna lose customers clients he said yes you will you got anyways on it at us for months and we finally did it didn't lose a customer next month he said the same thing you got to you got to raise them again and so we did that a few times we lost a few but they were mainly you know not pleasant clients like they were difficult to deal with so we were well under charging what we should have been charging and so therefore had to work more hours um to to make everything you know yeah and i think when you lack experience in business one of the things that you people often do is they take on clients that never pay the bills yeah or they um, underprice, undervalue, um, and so you're actually working, you know, the harder rather than the smarter. Yeah. Um, because you're so worried about how you can compete that you you simply compete on price, and it's not the right thing to do, is it? Because if you're charging more, you can have less clients and better yep. clients, mm-hmm. um, and enjoy your work more. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Well, I have loved talking to you today. It's been awesome hearing all of your advice, um, given that you've been um, so successful in your businesses and had so much variety and experience. And a lot um, of mistakes thrown in there as well. Don't forget, Carly. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. There's, there's always lots of mistakes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't go along the path without making mistakes. That's for sure. Mm. Uh, so where can people find you? Uh, go to growasmallbusiness.com. Um, you can, that's our website there. And you can see the podcast. Uh, I'll shoot through some links to the, those, the books and the articles that I mentioned too. If you want to chuck them in the show notes, so people might be interested in those. 
Yeah, cool. And do you have any um, social handles? Social no, they're, they're, they're all on the website because they, I can't remember them off the top of my head because they're all slightly different due to not being able to get the same one for each platform, unfortunately. Yeah, it is annoying when that happens, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. But feel free, anyone, to reach out, connect to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email. It's just troy at growasmallbusiness.com and check out the website as well. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Carly. I feel very privileged to be on. Thank you. And the first bloke. Yeah, and the first bloke. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Being Unstoppable podcast, brought to you by my personal brand, Freebies, which you can find at carlyfontanelli.com. If you got value from this week's episode, I would love it if you would hit subscribe and take a minute to leave me a review. You can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook. Just search for Carly Fontanelli. Until next time, remember, if you believe in yourself, you will be unstoppable.